The reading of God's Word this morning will be in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, use your word to transform us today, even as we sit here. Father, we pray that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. That all things that might keep us from you we be considered as loss. So open your word to us today, Lord. Transform my lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing this book of Philippians from prison. This is known as one of the prison epistles because, in fact, he is sitting in a house, very likely, but unable to go anywhere, surrounded by guards, He's lost everything, and all he can do is write letters. Here here he had a fellow at this time in his life who has been rejected by many of his Jewish brothers, whom he used to call friends. He lost some time before a lucrative job, which he loved. Well, we don't think it was the greatest job in the world because it was out persecuting Christians. But for him, he was enforcing the law. He was the holiest of holies. He was, he was the man after God's own heart as far as he was concerned. He was a force in the law that he loved for the sake of the God whom he revered. This was who he was. His whole identity was wrapped up in this. He lost everything that had defined him and he had been beaten almost to the point of death more than once. He's lost his freedom and so when he writes about losing it all, In the book of Philippians, he's not writing simply as a matter of theory and a matter of good, coherent theology. This is his life. The thing is, in in this letter to the church in Philippi, ironically enough, his primary theme is that of joy. So in some ways, what we're doing today and as we go through this passage, it's what we call a bit of a series of word studies. And that is we're going to be examining a particular word or series of phrases in terms of their context and meaning to help us more fully understand the author's intent in in this given passage of scripture. And I'm hoping that as we work our way through a few of these words, we'll gain a better understanding of what the Apostle Paul's goals are for his life and the means he sees for reaching those goals. And in this scripture, since it's his scripture, what God sees as the goal for our lives and the means which God has given us to reach those goals. So, 
Let us dig in and see what we can learn together here. The words that I want us to examine are gain, loss, surpassing value, and rubbish. Gain, loss, surpassing value, and rubbish. Paul says, I count everything, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And we'll see how this passage shows us how to embrace the means for laying a hold of ultimate justification, ultimate purpose, ultimate values that we might ultimately have what our hearts ultimately desire. So, Paul has up to this point listed off in the previous set of verses his credentials. He talks about himself as being having been a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew, a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day of, the, of, of terms of keeping the law, blameless. But now he's taking a look at all of his credentials in the light of these list of words. Let's look at counting loss. I have Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The term counting loss here is really an issue of gain. I'm sorry, of advantage. Gain for him is actually, actually we can use the term advantage. If we use the term loss, it would be disadvantage. So what, in fact, if we just swap the words out, you can say whatever advantage I had, whatever benefit I thought I had from everything that preceded here, these things I consider to be a disadvantage. An example. Growing up in my high school years and college years, I, I wrestled. Uh, wasn't always very good at it, but I, was, I, I had some success at, at times. And I, I was a skinny little fellow. I was about in high school when I graduated, I was about 155 pounds. Now, I'm 6'3", and so I'm about 50 pounds more than that right now. Okay. So I was, I was a skinny, long-armed, long-legged fella. The problem is that if you're going to wrestle 155 pounds or whatever weight you're going to wrestle at, you're going to step out onto the mat against someone who weighs precisely the same weight that you do. Now, I was so very, very tall that at 155 pounds, I wasn't going to carry much meat on my bones. But I would go against guys who were, oh, 4'11". <clears throat> okay. So they were this tall at 155 pounds, and I'm this tall at 155 pounds, and they were thick. They were muscles everywhere. They could bench press four of me easily. Okay, now, I didn't think that was fair because their arms were very, very short. But the fact was that they were exceedingly strong, muscles bulging everywhere. In fact, I would walk out on the mat, and I would see this fellow who was just this little mini mountain of muscle, and I would hear in the stands my mother crying. Okay. Desperate to come down and hit, them, hit that fellow with, his, with her purse. Now, that's because he had an enormous advantage. He was so strong. But you see, the problem with that much muscle is that the oxygen and blood has to feed that muscle for six solid minutes, assuming he doesn't crush me first. But it has to last. And if I can survive into the third period, if I can survive four minutes into the match, all of that muscle that he has is really like fat. 
it goes dead. And he's got these little stubby arms and legs that can't keep him from being turned over. And so over he rolls onto his back. And I found that I had my greatest success against the fellows who had the most muscle. Because not only were their muscles get tired, but invariably they believed that it was their muscles that was going to save them. And so they wouldn't spend the time and the energy and the effort and the discipline to learn how to wrestle. They were going to crush me with their power. And so what they thought was an advantage, what was gained to them was actually loss. All that muscle ended up working against them. And so it is that all that they thought and all that Paul thought he had going for him was actually discovering to be a disadvantage. Indeed, he keeps on going in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Surpassing worth or surpassing value. The term there is literally to hold over. That is, like one would hold a trophy over your head. In fact, in fact it's, it's raising something that's exceedingly valuable over your head because you have finally gained it. Think of the, the Lombardi trophy. Everyone might know that one as being the, the trophy that, that you win if you win the Super Bowl. And so you see all these guys who have poured out their lives and certainly the last season, but all the years preceding up to it, poured out their lives so that they could gain and win that one ultimate goal, and they could hold the trophy over their head, and they could say, this is everything I've been working forward to. Another trophy is the World Cup trophy. We're not, it's not as popular here, but it is probably considered the most valuable and most coveted trophy around the world to ever have. You have children everywhere, all over the world, playing hours and hours and hours of soccer just to get and to live the dream of standing there and holding up the World Cup trophy. And it's this trophy of about three golden guys, men with their arms outstretched and their backs are to each other and they're in a circle and there's this ball that sits on top of it. And there's a green band around it and, and every four years, in fact, I believe next year it's going to be in, um, in South Africa. The dream around the world amongst the rich and the poor, is to hold this World Cup trophy over the head because it is of surpassing value. It is, in fact, of so much surpassing value that back in 1994, there was a gentleman from Colombia who accidentally scored on his own team, and they lost. Who knows how it happened? He was in his own goal. It hit him. It went off his foot, accidentally went into his own goal. His name was Escobar. He got home to Colombia, and not long after he arrived home, he was murdered in his home because of this. Why? Because the World Cup trophy was of surpassing value. It was of more value than anything else in the world. We have advantage and disadvantage. We have surpassing value. And then Paul says... For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. It's the closest thing to a swear word we actually have in the scriptures. It's the uh, only time it's actually ever used in the scriptures. Paul, Paul is the only one ever to use it, and he only uses it here. It is 
the, the Greek word for it is skubala. So if you want to say crude things and get away with it, write that down, say skubala. It is a word that is used by many estimations, a, work, a word of, um, of sewage. Uh, it's a dung heap. It is the most colorful word that Paul could come up with to describe the filth and the smell and the disgust that he was attempting to communicate. The people of that day would have been familiar with this term, particularly in light of the fact that all of the towns are up in, are kind of in a, were built on one main street. And at one end of town, at the bottom of the hill, was the scubala heap. That's where everyone would go and take and empty bedpans. That's where everyone would go and dump their sewage. That's where, that's where when the, the butcher had completed all of his, his cleaning of the meats and sold his meat, he would take all the fat and the garbage and the bones and, take it and dump it down on the scubala heap. You can imagine what might happen if the wind were to change direction. Everyone knew what the scubala heap was. And so when he talks about his gain, when he talks about all the things that were advantaged to him, he considers it to be not simply a, a better alter, like Christ is not simply a better alternative to another perfectly sufficient way. But he would say, no, my way, following the law, it was it was putrid. It was sewage. In fact, he had been fundamentally stating, hey, if he looks back on his life and he looks back on all that he's accomplished, everywhere that he's been, all of his credentials, he holds this over his head and he says, look, I won the World Cup. I've got the World Cup, the Lombardi Trophy of credentials when it comes to standing before God. If anybody deserves to get into heaven, I all the more. And he says, but when he looks at the advantage of having Christ, he realizes that what he's been holding over his head this whole time has been sewage. He's been so proud of all this sewage. You see, this is the challenge that you and I have. There are really two major ways that we stand before God. And we hold up our accomplishments. Or we, in fact, I'll even back up and say that what Paul was attempting to do here was justify his life. He was giving purpose and meaning and value. He was seeking his salvation and his purpose in life, in all that he'd accomplished and who he was from, where he was from. And you and I struggle with exactly the same thing. We are so tempted to look at our race, it just makes us just a little bit better than other people, perhaps. Maybe our socioeconomic position, our education, the fact that if you're a gal, the guys find you attractive, or if you're a guy, that the gals think you're sexy. You have a, that you're articulate, you're funny. Whatever it is that, that you find your purpose and meaning and value in, for, for parents, it can be your children. You're, we find it it's so tempting to seek our purpose and value and justification for living in our children. And we say, if my children were to die, my life wouldn't be worth living. Really. Then your children have become your salvation. Your children have become your purpose. 
and become your idol. And so really we have two classes of people though. We have the, what I call the a-religious folks who seek their salvation in things overtly other than God in their careers. But if their careers were to fail, then their self-image, their view of themselves, their, their sense of worth would go away. But then you have the religious folks like Paul. And in fact, like many in our churches today. And that is, we seek our salvation in following the commands of Jesus so that we can avoid Jesus altogether. We follow the commands of Jesus. We follow the law so that we don't have to trust in what Christ has done for us. We We want to stand before God and we want God to accept us because of what we've done. Look, God, haven't I been good enough? Look at, God, you need to accept me because I've been obedient to your word. You need to give me what I'm asking for because I've been good. I would suggest, actually, there's a bit of a bait and switch. This is a natural thing, but there's a bit of bait and switch, I think, that we use on Christians. And that is, in order to be saved, how are you saved? Saved by faith. Saved by faith alone, without no works, just by trusting. How do you maintain? How do you, be, how do you keep being saved? How do you keep your salvation? Well, it's easy. Here's your list of things you've got to do. Now, see, if you're not following all the rules in just the right way, then God's going to be upset with you, and very likely you're probably not going to be being saved. Paul says, Paul, Paul says, no. Not only were you saved by faith, but you're maintained by faith. In fact, he's he, quite upset. He actually writes to the Galatians in, in, in chapter 3 of, 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 of Galatians, and he says to them, well, I said something very important to them, but I've gotten ahead of myself. I've gotten ahead of myself. We're going to come back to that. talk then but for a moment though about his advantage and his disadvantage but isn't it an advantage to obey the law isn't it an advantage to be good isn't it an advantage in fact from Paul's perspective to have been Jewish I thought back in Romans 3 he says to them then what advantage has the Jew or the benefit of circumcision Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So here in Romans, back in Romans, he says, it's an advantage to be Jewish. And now all of a sudden, Philippians, he says, all these things that were advantageous to me, being Jewish, following the law, all those things are suddenly a disadvantage. So you might say, well, then isn't it an advantage that I come to church? Isn't it an advantage that I read God's word or that I, that I do good things or that I care for people? Isn't Paul contradicting himself? Well, no, he's not contradicting himself. Because you see, he was making obedience to law. He was making a good thing, as Tim Keller puts it. He's making a good thing, the ultimate thing. You and I, if we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing, what we've done is we've replaced Jesus Christ with something else that's good. We've replaced Jesus Christ with something that ultimately destroys us because we've taken something that is not ultimate 
and made it ultimate, and it can never satisfy. It can never provide for you and for me what it is we want from it. It can never provide for us ultimate justification, ultimate purpose, because they will fail us. Our children will fail us. We'll lose our jobs. We will get old. We'll no longer be beautiful. We'll no longer necessarily have riches. Wherever you're defining your, yourself, you're seeking your, your purpose and value, those things will fail us. And because we're, if you're making it an ultimate thing, you'll lose it all. If you make being good your ultimate thing, then if you're not quite good enough one day and you don't measure up, then you've lost it all. So, What is Paul's goal? What is his great desire? It's to gain Christ. It's to have the ultimate advantage. I count everything as rubbish, as sewage, so that I might have the ultimate advantage of Christ. And he says, and be found in him. He wants the incomparable advantage of having Christ. But he wants to be found in him. And how how is he found in Christ? How does the Father, how does God find him in Christ? Well, he gives it two ways. One is he lists it negatively. He's going to list it positively and negatively. The first way he's found in Christ is negatively put. That is, he distances himself fundamentally from all the things that he had rested on over the years for his righteousness. That is, he's rejecting the law, his heritage, his traditions, his morality. He's saying, it's not by any of the things that I bring to the table. In fact, uh, Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury back during the first half of the century, during World War II particularly, he puts it this way. He says, all is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I must be redeemed. Paul distances himself from his righteousness and says, it's not by righteousness that I got through the law. But then he states it positively. He says, but the righteousness that comes from God, which depends on faith. Now, notice here that the righteousness didn't come from faith. In other words, it is not faith that provides me my righteousness. Righteousness comes from God. It is imputed or credited to us, and it is is taken hold of by faith. But the righteousness that we have is found in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness, not the faith righteousness of faith we are constantly resting in Christ's righteousness to find our acceptance before the Father it's not anything it's not by anything that I've done but it's simply by trusting in what Christ has done for me you see if I have gained Christ if I have gained hold of the ultimate justification the ultimate purpose and value then I'm no longer looking around me for ultimate acceptance. I'm no longer looking to people for my ultimate acceptance, from my children, from my parents, from my friends, from myself. If I am in Christ, I have absolute acceptance. One of our great fears, I think, is rejection. And in many ways, probably comes from the rejection that we still have from the garden. And our great heart's desire is to find ultimate acceptance and love and peace. And the only place we're going to find that 
is in Christ himself. And so if we have the ultimate advantage of Christ, then we don't have to fear the rejection and the lack of acceptance from those around, me, around us because we have ultimate acceptance, ultimate peace, ultimate love in Christ. And that can never be lost. So it's to be found in Christ and to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. His goal is not that he would have intellectual assent of the the existence of Christ, but that he might have experiential knowledge of Christ himself, to have him living inside of him, to have him living inside of you, to experience the resurrection, the life-giving joy that comes from knowing Christ our Savior. To know that he was once dead in his sins, that he was lost to God, that he was rejected by God, But then Christ's resurrection came and death was dealt a death blow. And now you and I can experience life of absolute intimacy and acceptance from the Father. What we're talking about here, from Paul's perspective, and I think we'll find through the rest of Scripture, is something quite radical. What the cross, what the cross does for us is it gives us freedom. Freedom from having to do a whole list of things. But it gives us a freedom to be something and everything that Christ has called us to be. We have to be reminded of this, though. We have to remind because we constantly have the temptation to think that now that we're Christians, we have to start following a set of rules to keep God happy with us. And we don't. And now reference to Paul in Galatians. This is the only, he says to them, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Because he's hearing news from them that all of a sudden, that now they become Christians, that now they're having to follow a whole set of rules in order to, to be good Christians. And he says, this only thing I want to hear from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to muster up all this list of good things in order to be maintained in the flesh? He goes on, no. No. This is where I mentioned the bait and switch. God accepted you by faith, but his acceptance of you is maintained by your ability to toe the line. At least that's what we're tempted to hold to. And yet Paul completely rejects that. Because if you hold that view, then God owes you. Then in some ways you've earned your salvation. And if you've been good enough, here's what's going to happen. If you've been really good and bad things happen to you, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be angry with God because he didn't uphold his end of the deal. God, why am I suffering? Why are bad things happening to me? Look, I've been good. I've done what you've asked me to do. Or the flip side. I haven't been good enough and you're just ridden with guilt. The gospel frees us from that. However, don't misunderstand me. Are we saying that therefore I can run off and do whatever I want? Woohoo! No, no, 
No limits now. Paul absolutely rejects that. Because his next statement is that I might share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. You see, tucked into this next sentence is Paul's absolute rejection of live how I want. Since he has been found in Christ and since his righteousness comes from Christ, it was never a part of what he brought to the table. And since Paul knows that the glory of knowing Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection, then he, need, then he wants to be like him in his death. He's recognizing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. If knowing Christ is really of surpassing worth, if, everyone else, if everything else is garbage by comparison, if everyone else's approval, if financial security, if my heritage, denomination, if the neighborhood I live in, or the kind of car I drive is sewage, by comparison, then being willing to give it all up for, the Christ, for Christ's sake, then dying to yourself and being, becoming transformed into his image should be what feeds you, what motivates you. Do you see how the gospel can transform your life and your relationships? This is, not, this is not a, I should give to the poor, so I guess I will, or I should use my valuable time to care for others, so... I suppose I will. This is a Christ died willingly for me so I don't have to die. This is Christ willingly left luxury to become poor so that I might become rich. This is Christ was rejected by his own and the Father so that I might have ultimate acceptance. The gospel should free us from the desperate need to cling to what we have as though it will save us because we have so much more in Christ. His ultimate goal then was to, was to attain to the resurrection of the dead. His justification had been made secure. He was found in Christ. His sanctification or joining in becoming like Christ is in process. And now all this points to the resurrection. So that by any means, no matter what, I might attain Christ. And I might attain to the resurrection and know him. As you and I take hold of the gospel, we along with Paul will begin to realize in very practical ways that the radical nature of the Christian gospel, that it is a gift and it frees us to serve and work and give and care and even die. That's because Christ came and served and worked and gave and cared and even died. And because we have obtained something of such surpassing, holding it over your head value that everything we have is rubbish by comparison. And we do all these things, not in order to be accepted, but because we are accepted. You see, it's Christmas. And it is at Christmas where we begin to understand Not that a baby was born and now all is happy and sweet and this general kind of swag of peace on earth to everyone is proclaimed. No. It is a Christmas time that we remember that our Savior left heaven and took on flesh and was born under the law and became and began immediately to suffer. But this is the radical nature of the gospel. That because God came and suffered and served and was rejected and beaten and died 
And if by faith we take hold of that righteousness and acceptance offered to us in Christ, that because of all that, we can know true acceptance. We can serve and give and love and have courage and even suffer and die because we have the infinite advantage of Christ. And everything else that I hold dear is nothing in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us pray.